Well, it looks like you all hated me so much that you've given me this award for it. That it can be about the performance and not the politics. This moment is so much bigger than me. And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. And thank all of you who voted for me and all of you who didn't, please excuse me. I deserve this, thank you. And welcome to this week's episode of Academy Queens. I'm the man, I'm the man, I'm the man, Joey Gentili. And I'm really and truly inside you. I'm Brandon Stanwyck. <laughs> yes. And then this is this week's episode of Academy Queens, your LGBT guide through the Academy Awards per decade per category. And this is the class of 2012. Brandon, that was fucking perfect. Um, I was really wondering what you were going to do from the sessions, and the fact that you did that was just made my night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when, when uh, that line was said in the movie, I wrote it down right away. <laughs> Which will be funny to talk about, too, because I actually wasn't aware about the director's cut version of the sessions until I went to review it. Did you know about this? No. Oh, this will be interesting then when we bring in our guest as well, which we'll do here in just a moment, um, because I'm curious to know if he knows about it. Um, but yeah, this is a super exciting episode. Um, this is the one that I've been looking forward to, honestly, since we started 1970, uh, the pilot episode. Um, you know, everyone has a very special year to them at the Academy Awards. And even though I started watching um, like getting really serious with the Academy Awards for 2010, 2012 was special for a couple reasons. Number one, I love the year 2012 because it was my 20th year on this earth and it has by far been the best year of my 20s. That's number one. But this is the year that I really made sure that I went out for the first time to see everything and actually bet money on this uh, ceremony and just went it was, it was the year that made me really learn about the campaign and what it takes. And I just, I love this year. So mm -hmm. it's a very special year for me. And I'm really excited that we're finally here. What about you? How do you feel about this year? Oh, it's a, it's a pretty good year. Um, so my a relationship with this year is I also got to see a lot of these movies um, in the theater at the time, mm -hmm. which was unusual for me leading up to this point in my Oscars watch uh, history. Usually I've watched most things that after they come out on DVD and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But um, I had just done a video for the Cleveland cinemas. I was in like a theater etiquette video that plays before the movies at the Cleveland cinemas. And um, as payment, they gave me a gift card for like $150 worth oh, of shit. watching movies. So um, I spread it out and got to watch a lot of these that came to the Capitol Theater on the west side of Cleveland um, over a period of a few months. So that's how I saw a lot of these for the first time. Nice. Um, noted for future episodes, I feel like the Capitol is going to be mentioned a lot this season. Um, yesterday yeah. we, we, started our, uh, we started recording, actually, with the class of 2017, and I mentioned the Capitol. So now they get it, at le well, for us, we get it two days in a row, but they're going to get it a lot more. So heads up, mm -hmm. guys. But yeah. uh, we have someone very special with us today. So yes. why, why don't you introduce them? Sure. So um, our special guest today comes to us by winning our little contest on Twitter, 
where he successfully guessed uh, who we picked for our lead and supporting actress winners for 2005. He is a contributing editor for Broadway World, a contributing writer for Gold Derby, and the creator of the Care Reviews podcast. We have with us today Jeffrey Care. Hello, Hi. Jeffrey. Hi, great to be here, and it's nice to be joining fellow Northeast Ohioans. Wait, what? Oh, is that where you're from? Well, well, yeah, I was born in Canton and raised in a small town called Louisville. Oh. <gasps> no way. I I had no idea. Yeah. So is that where you're where you're at now? Uh no, I'm I've been living in Raleigh, North Carolina since graduating high school in 2013, which just so happens to have been after the Oscar season we're going to be talking about. Which is also funny that you said that because our guest yesterday, well, for the future, for everyone listening, for 2017, also graduated in the class of 2017 or 2013. Ah. So we got two in a row. Hell yeah. Well, welcome. That's awesome. I had no idea you were from Northeast Ohio. Yeah. So That's exciting as hell. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so 2005, how exactly... Did you get us? Because uh, guessing our our winners isn't always easy. Yeah. Well, well, it was. Oh, well, I guess I was just looking my guesses. But I guess what I took into account, since I well, for one, since I follow Brandon on Letterboxd, I pretty much looked at his ratings of the uh, the films the actresses were nominated for and went by what he liked most, at least in terms of the movies. And for you, Joey, well, I pretty much, for alternative sake, I pretty. Much looked up what the general consensus of film twitter would have preferred to win that year and just went with it first of all l o fucking l at the letterbox thing because i have told brandon um uh this has been brought up before by uh other people trying to guess about the letterbox and i'm like bro people are guessing they're getting it and it's look at that another letterbox winner <laughs> i don't the funny thing is, though, I usually don't mention the actresses in my reviews. So the only thing people will know is whether I like the movie or not. I purposefully don't mention the actresses because of this. Yeah. Well, and and I, I do like give that. winners to movies I didn't like. Remember, I didn't <laughs> like Leaving Las Vegas, and I gave Elizabeth Shue the win. So that's not necessarily how it always works. Well, yeah, but hey, again, I was just <laughs> lucky. And, and you definitely do a good job at hiding your thoughts on the actresses. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well... Um, one of the things that we always offer, as people know by now, are the winners who come on, or, they, or the uh, the guests who come on, they get to choose the year that they want to take part in. Why 2012? Well, 2012 actually holds a special place in my heart. Not only was it one of my favorite movie years, but also one of my favorite Oscar seasons. A lot of the Best Picture nominees were some of my favorite films of that year, and I was very happy to see each of them take home their share of gold on Oscar night. Plus, there were some exciting races that were difficult to predict. Yeah, agreed. Not only that, but this is like a super historic year when it comes to the ladies. I mean, in the Best Actress category alone, you had the youngest ever nominee, and you had the old or youngest ever nominee in um, lead actress, and the oldest ever nominee in in the same category. They book they book ended the hell out of this lineup. Uh, before we get started this season, as you guys have heard by now, we are guessing who we think we're going to give the Oscars to. So, since you're our guest with us today, Jeffrey, why don't you start off with who you think we're going to pick? Okay, I think both of you are probably going to 
pick Anne Hathaway for Les Miserables. For Best Actress, I guess Joy's going to go with Jessica Chastain in Zero Dark Thirty, and I think Brandon's going to go with Emmanuel Riva for Amour. Brandon? Um, for Joey, I'm guessing Quivangene Wallace for Beast of the Southern Wild, and I'm not so sure about supporting, but I know how much you love Jackie Weaver, so I'm just going to go ahead and say Jackie Weaver for Silver Linings Playbook. Uh, Jeffrey, I'm not sure about your taste here, but, uh, for some reason I'm feeling Jessica Chastain and Anne Hathaway. Okay, I'm not going to give you a hint as to how you did your guesses, <laughs> but we'll leave it at that. And I'm going to okay. say, for Jeffrey, I'm going to be bold here, actually. I'm going to say Amy Adams for The Master. <sighs> for lead, you know what, I'm going to stick with Jennifer Lawrence. I think you're going to throw it her way. Brandon... You're definitely going Emmanuel Riva. I just have this gut feeling about it. And you know what? I'm going to say Jackie Weaver as well. Um, yeah, I'm going to leave it at that. I'm going to say Weaver and Riva for you. So let, okay. let's see what we got, guys. Let's see what, we, okay. let's see what we're going to do. All right. Well, uh, let's dive right in then. Um, your nominees for Best Supporting Actress in 2012 were... Amy Adams, The Master. Let's uh, start off with our winner here. We have Anne Hathaway winning for Less Miserables. This is... <laughs> I remember people joking about the title when in the reviews for the movie when it was coming out. Well, okay, so I took that from the movie Bernie because that's how Matthew McConaughey's character pronounces it in the movie. And ah. I thought it was hilarious. So, um, yes. In Less Miserables... Um, Anne Hathaway plays Fantine, a single mother working in a factory trying to support her daughter. When And then she loses that job and things take a turn for the worst. This was her second of two nominations and so far her only win. Going into this, she was a bit of a force because she takes the Golden Globe, BAFTA, SAG, Critics' Choice, the National Board of Review, and the Dorian Award. And she's also recognized with the National Society of Film Critics, the New York Film Critics, uh, the MTV Movie Awards, and the Saturn Awards. So, Jeffrey, as our guest, how do you feel about Anne Hathaway in Les Miserables? <laughs> okay, so the 2012 film adaptation of the Les Miserables stage musical has proven to be one of the most divisive movies of the past decade. Detractors especially weren't fans of director Tom Hooper's use of extreme close-ups as well as how he had the singing approached overall. Personally, I liked the movie a lot, but that's a whole other conversation. As for Anne Hathaway's performance, I remember when the very first teaser trailer debuted where we all got an early glimpse of her rendition of I Dreamed a Dream, everyone knew immediately that she was going to be the best supporting actress frontrunner. 
When my boss at Gold Derby, Tom O'Neill, was discussing Oscar predictions with Michael Mustel later in the year, Mustel thought Hathaway's rendition of I Dreamed a Dream was even better than Susan Boyle's. As someone who has seen the stage musical about four times, I can be able to share some key differences between that and the movie involving the character Fontaine. In the stage version, after Fontaine gets fired from the factory, the audience gets to know her more through the song I Dreamed a Dream, then transitions into the next number, Lovely Ladies. In the movie, after Fontaine gets fired from the factory, she's left all on her own, trying to find ways of making money to support her daughter Cosette, which then leads into Lovely Ladies. In that number, we watch her suffer from losing her hair to losing her two front teeth to becoming a prostitute. After dealing with her first customer, it is then we get I Dreamed a Dream, which in the final cuts, they used a take that was done in one long continuous shot, and the fact that they not the fact that they not only moved the song to that point in the plot and used that take, but also the fact that the singing was recorded live on set makes Hathaway's rendition all the more heartbreaking. Holy shit, you came prepared. Yes. Wow. And Joey, how do you feel about uh, Anne Hathaway? I, I don't know how to follow that up. I mean, he really came prepared. I like him. I like him <laughs> a lot. Okay, so I went into, and I really want to say it, but I just want to like tell you to shut up on the Les Miserables because it's so funny. So I'm just going to go by Les Mis. Um, I saw Les Mis, believe it or not, as a Les Mis virgin um, when this came out. Uh, despite coming from the stage and musical theater background, I somehow weirdly avoided this. And I didn't realize right off the bat that the entire movie was song. And instantly fucking hated this movie. Um, I really, really, really hate Les Mis as a show. Um, and... I will agree with the statement that Jeffrey put the moment we pretty much saw Anne Hathaway looking like Shanae O'Connor in like a behind the scenes photo. She instantly took that best supporting actress slot and um, without a doubt was the one to beat. With that said, I really don't care for her portrayal here. Number one. I don't know if it's the story of Les Mis because this is the only time I've seen it. And after seeing this, I will not, I just I can't bring myself to ever see another version because I just found it dreadful as hell. This is this is the prime definition of like a cameo win because Fontaine as a character really isn't there. She shows up, she gets fired, she has a kid, she shaves her head, she is a hoe, and then she dies in the matter of what, 45 seconds pretty much? I mean, granted, that's obviously exaggerated. Not by much, <laughs> but it's exaggerated. Why do I care about this person? Why, why is she affecting me? This is the prime example of I dreamed a dream, her big moment. This is an Oscar moment. This is not an Oscar role. This is an Oscar moment. Therefore, there's not a full character there for me to realize that anything is really going on. Now... I do want to note before anyone attacks, I will also bring this up later on in this lineup with another role. But I just want to say, like, I'm noting it here. So just so everyone's prepared, you don't have to like, you know, I'll be I'll be taking questions on it later. So, yeah, I just don't care about it because there's nothing to care about. And while Hathaway sure is fine, this is just an Oscar moment role. So that's what I got to say on it. Yeah, I remember seeing... Um... 
Les Mis in the theater back when it came out and thinking during my dream to dream that this is going to be Anne Hathaway's Oscar. It's just that kind of performance in this kind of movie where it was pretty clear that unless something really crazy happened, it was going to be an almost undeniable eventual win. Um, I had seen Les Mis, I think, once, maybe twice before the movie came out. I've seen it a few, a few different productions. I saw it when it toured, when it came through Cleveland, and then I, my brother was in a production of it. Um, so I'd seen a couple different Fontaines before this one. And something I do like about this version, more than the stage versions that I had seen, um, I don't know how they're typically performed, but something I didn't really care for in some of those productions was that Fontaine was a little bit too pretty, and it, I didn't really believe where she was going but with this version, with Anne Hathaway, I feel as though she truly is on a descent. Like, every scene with her is completely exponentially worse than the one that came before it. And when <laughs> we eventually get to I Dreamed a Dream, it all makes sense. And she really flowers in that moment. Um, it's a great little, I don't know, I don't want to say a punctuation mark because there's more to her character a little bit after that song. But it all sort of um, comes together and builds into something really powerful in that moment. Um, I think she's in a little bit more of the movie than you give her credit for. Uh, I think it is easy to dismiss her screen time because she is only in like the first quarter of the movie, except for like there's a moment in the end, I think, where we kind of see her as like an angel type thing. But yeah. um, she is very believable in this role. And I think she has a presence throughout. And uh, her... her her descent into desperation, I think is very carefully built, um, built up to until we get to that song. Uh, but I think she has a really great presence in this movie. And I think she's the best thing about this movie, to be honest. Um, I'm not a huge fan of it. I'm generally not a huge musical person, but um, there's just something about this movie that doesn't really click with me. And um, the only parts of it that I like are really the Anne Hathaway parts. So, um, yeah, I guess those are my thoughts on it. Jeffrey, did you have anything uh, to respond to? Well, uh, well, uh, one thing I'd like to point out is that in the stage version, the well, at least in the Broadway productions that have taken place, the role of Fontaine has never been recognized by the Tonys. So this is definitely a big upgrade that oh. the movie, that the movie, uh, well, Fontaine wins the Oscar while she's never been nominated for Broadway. Interesting. No, no, I had no idea about that. Yeah, that surprises me actually. Mm -hmm. I would like to come back with two points really quick. Number one, if you're gonna if you're gonna nominate someone in Les Mis for supporting Samantha Barks was right there. That's just my take on that. I actually I would have nominated her too. Yeah. Well, what's her character? Epiphany or 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 I don't fucking know. Epiphany. Yep. Epiphany. Sure. That works. Um, <laughs> She was right there. That is a full-out flesh character in this film version of Les Mis. Now, one day we could, and I would love to, do a bonus episode where we rank Best Picture of 2012. And I will get into full details of probably ever since this movie came out, my favorite review that I've ever seen on IMDb. But I would like to recite to you this uh, watcher's take on Anne Hathaway. Really quick, I will get right through this. By Manchester Matthew, this review was posted on January 12, 2013 with one star out of 10, and he named it Le Painful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, Anne Hathaway's deterioration from factory worker to cropped and toothless prostitute was compacted into all of 40 seconds. So when it came to her performance of I Dreamed a Dream, which was a rare highlight in the film, its impact was stunted because why should we care about this woman? She's only just introduced to us and we know nothing about her, presumably because everyone is too busy singing like this instead of actually making us care. He actually like wrote it out like that. Um, and I think he hits it right on the nail mm-hmm. or hits the nail on the head. Yeah, there's something about this movie that never really welcomes me in. Like, I feel like I watch it and I see the spectacle. I see all that went into putting all this stuff in front of the camera. But it, I never really feel as though I'm a part of it. And I wonder if that's the disconnect where I don't really care for this movie as a whole. Yeah. But, um, but Anne Hathaway is really the only thing I find interesting about it. Um, I mean, I do like Samantha. Uh, is it Barks or Banks? Yeah, I do like her quite a bit. I think she does um on my own pretty well uh but for the most part it's just an all right movie for me well i will say that not to give well uh, well not to give too much away but when but when she shows up at the end of the film to confront hugh jackman's character jean valjean i mean it's such a moving moment i think i'm just so tuned out at that point like i honestly can't even i don't even think i've ever seen this movie in, in in full like ever because i'm pretty sure this is one of the few times i fell asleep in a movie theater so like i no i don't i don't i don't even know what you're referring to to be honest not just okay. Shady, it's just the truth behind it okay well uh next we have amy adams nominated for the master this is her fourth of six nominations going into this she wins with the national society of film critics and that's about her it's just about her only win, as Anne Hathaway takes most of the precursors. But she is recognized with the Golden Globes, BAFTA, the Los Angeles Film Critics, and the Critics' Choice Awards. In The Master, Amy Adams plays Peggy Dodd, the wife of Lancaster Dodd, a cult leader played by Philip Seymour Hoffman. So, Joey, how do you feel about Amy Adams in The Master? She's fine. Um, the Master falls under the Paul Thomas Anderson umbrella, Clearly, he wrote and directed it. When it comes to that umbrella, only three of the films under it I actually like, and that's Inherent Vice, Magnolia, and Boogie Nights. This just happens to be on the outside of the umbrella. Um, I, I think it. I think it's a fine film. I, I mean, it really captures the moment in time. And but the, the thing about it is that it, it's a performance piece film. Now, regarding the performances, Adams is just there i'm not really sure I, I, I mean she gives a steady hand job it seems i mean who gives a fucking hand job it's not like we're in the third grade anymore but it's like <laughs> she gives a steady hand job and is really poignant on attack we must attack but like what is she doing um I, this just feels kind of like a love for amy adams at this point i mean yeah this is her fourth nomination uh, in what six years so uh seven seven yeah because yeah. she was first nominated in 2005 yeah seven and four so there's three years in between these the seven years where she's not a, a nominee so at this point she just kind of feels like a like a staple to the academy kind of like an eight 1980s Merrill. um <laughs> she's fine i just don't see what what is oscar worthy here mm-hmm 
Well, in the beginning of the movie, Amy Adams' character feels more like a bystander as she doesn't have a whole lot to do, though there are several nice reaction shots of her. But as the film, but as the film goes on, she does get more opportunities to shine. She appears to be very supportive of her husband, played by the late Philip Seymour Hoffman, especially when he later gets arrested over halfway through. I also liked the words of wisdom she gives to Joaquin Phoenix's character at different points in the film. Um... Yeah, I'm kind of in the middle on this um, Amy Adams nomination. Uh, I don't think she's doing nothing, but I also don't think that this is her finest hour by any means. Um, this is a performance that has a, I guess you could call it a quiet strength to it. She's someone who's, she's usually there, as Jeffrey was saying, taking everything in, listening, reacting, mostly silently. And um, that doesn't mean that she's always quiet, though, because when she is in these one-on-one -on -one moments with Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix, she doesn't have much of a problem um, speaking her mind and standing up to them when she feels it's necessary. Um, she's not someone who, you know, is just going to uh, submit. And there's times watching it where I wonder how much she really believes that her husband is saying how um how much she's really going along with this uh cult of his versus how much she's just um curious or uh i don't know maybe she just has this weird fascination of what's going on but uh it's a character that i find very fascinating that um i almost want the movie to focus on her a little bit more just to really understand what her motivations are like why is she here why is she staying with uh lancaster dodd what does she really think about all of this uh it's a little difficult sometimes to really get in her head which is not always a bad thing for me but um i kind of wish the movie had focused just a little bit more on her for that reason did you guys see and it was super recent too on twitter there's something going around about seeing Amy Adams was the was the titular role. She was the actual master controlling everything. And Philip Seymour Hoffman was her puppet. Did you guys see that at all? Or am I imagining this theory? I didn't see that. I didn't see that either. But that is kind of a thought that I had while watching it. When I was thinking, like, what is her role here? How, what is her level of involvement? I, could, I couldn't help but wonder how much she was guiding things behind the curtain. You know, like how much power and how much influence does she have? over the Philip Seymour Hoffman character. He's the, the figurehead of it all, and he's like the voice of it all, but how much is she really pulling the strings? It's a character that I, I want more of, and yet at the same time, I kind of like this mystery to her. Yeah. Yeah, if anyone on Twitter, when you hear this, can find that article and add us, that'd be great, because I want to know if I'm going crazy or if I actually saw that. That'd mm -hmm. be nice. Next, we have Sally Field, nominated for Lincoln. This is her third of three nominations. Um, she was coming into this 2-0 at the Oscars, considering her prior two nominations she won four, and those were Norma Ray and Places in the Heart. Going into this, she wins the New York Film Critics Circle Award, but she is also recognized with the Golden Globes, BAFTA, SAG, Critics' Choice, National Society of Film Critics, and with the AARP Movies for Grown Ups Award. <laughs> Sally Field plays Mary Todd Lincoln, the troubled first lady to President Abraham Lincoln. 
So Jeffrey, how do you feel about Sally Field and Lincoln? I think her performance with the help of Tony Kushner's script and Steven Spielberg's direction makes this characterization of Mary Todd Lincoln feel humanized. There's even a great scene that takes place about 15 minutes or so into the film where Mary is still mourning the death of her third son, Willie. When her oldest, played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, joins the Union Army, she becomes so worried that he'll end up getting killed that she keeps trying to convince her husband to pass the 13th Amendment and end the Civil War. Whether anyone has ever experienced that kind of emotion before or not, I think it's easy to relate to what Mary was going through at that time. She appeared to have been such a devoted wife and mother. Not to mention that watching the great Sally Field act opposite the great Daniel Day-Lewis is quite remarkable to behold. Yeah, I would agree with that. Also, too, if I may follow up really quick right off your tail with that one, is the fact that we like Sally could hold her own against Daniel Day-Lewis is a testament to fucking great acting. Indeed. Yes. I, you know, she made it very, very clear in her campaign how she really fought for this role. No one wanted her. Spielberg didn't want her. They just didn't think it was going to work out. And within, like, literally reading to two days later, she got the role. Um, You know, it, it proves right there, that story alone, that even winning two Oscars doesn't mean you're getting work. And let me just start there. Second of all, I love this performance. I love history. History is my favorite subject. I'm a huge poli-sci person too. Also funny that I mentioned that after yesterday's recording. Um, The film as a whole, I get bored with, to be honest with you. I don't think it's one of Spielberg's best. What really holds me together is Field and Day-Lewis. Day-Lewis will be for another conversation though. Mm-hmm. But Field is phenomenal here. First of all, yeah, Sally had some po- possibilities over the years to come back to the Oscars with Steel Magnolias and Forrest Gump. And maybe I'll just throw Soap Dish in there for shits and gigs. But, <laughs> right. But to finally see her back was so nice. But it got, and of course, there was that whole like flying nun bit at the Oscars with um, uh, what's Seth, Mac- Seth MacFarlane. Right, where even she was like, well, maybe Jackie will win. Well, Amy will win. Nah, they're giving it to Anne. Like, so, like, everyone knew going into this. And I'm sorry, but as a two-time winner who's uh, going into my third as 2-0, and that's got to chat my ass knowing that I'm about to lose. But, <laughs> right. But, no, I think what she does here is great. You know, we never had a voice to Lincoln. We never had a voice to Mary Todd. The fact that we know the story of Mary Todd, that she would stand up and be loud, but then she was put away in a mental asylum for a punishment, yada, yada, yada. I mean, she really pulls that through. There's that moment in the movie where she's going and sparring back with Day-Lewis, and she's just like, if you're going to do it, do it. And like your whole being feels that anger that she's got. Your whole being feels that pain that she's got. And that right there, fucking A, that's beautiful. Good Mm -hmm. for her. I love this nomination. Me too. Yeah, yeah. I think this is actually a very fabulous performance from Sally Field. Uh, it's crazy we had this huge gap between nominations here from, what, 1984 to now? Um, yeah. And yeah, you're right, Joey. She really fought for this role. I was reading, this movie was in pre-production for like eight years or something ridiculous. And she had put the idea in Steven Spielberg's head early on that she really wanted this role because apparently she's very fascinated with Mary Todd as a person. And um, when she found out that Daniel Day-Lewis had been um, cast as Lincoln, she thought her hopes were all gone, that there was no way they were ever going to cast her opposite Daniel Day-Lewis. 
And that's that's really shitty because, yeah, you're right. She's a two-time Academy Award nominee. There's only a, a few now. people. Or, yeah, that's what I meant. Uh, she's only a few people who have won, you know, two. Uh, and it's crazy that she didn't have the confidence um, that she really thought she didn't have a chance. Uh, but she's great here. I think she really fought for it and proved herself and it shows um i think it's perfect also that sally field play this part given the um strength of this character uh mary todd was someone who really stood up for herself she spoke her mind to the chagrin of a lot of the men in politics at that time um this feels like a 1970s 1980s sally field part in a way because of how strong and independent and um, strong-willed this character is. Um, I was also reading that Mary Todd is the reason we have the term First Lady. It was originated with her, and it was not a compliment. People did not like how forward she was and how she involved herself in conversations, so it was actually kind of a, a diss to her, like as a, like a stay-in-your-own-lane sort of term that kind of stuck, mm -hmm. and now we have it as an official term for a... The wife of the president um but yeah sally field is strong as hell she stands up to daniel day lewis uh another thing that very few actors can successfully do but she does it repeatedly throughout this movie and she shows us all different sides of mary todd um there's a fun little joking side of her in her scenes opposite tommy lee jones and um she really holds her husband um abraham lincoln responsible for you know saving the union and getting the 13th amendment um, in the books. And uh, she's not just gonna sit by on the sidelines and just watch and wait. And um, that's one of the reasons I think Sally Field is uh, perfect for this role. So um, she's really quite good. Yeah. Um, I would like to just note, again, this is for, for another conversation, but because you brought up Tommy Lee Jones, how close he was to winning that Oscar. And, and like mm -hmm. 2012 supporting actor lineup was one of the things that I love that I wish happened more often where people won all over the place. So going into it, it was anyone's game. So yeah. I would just like to throw that little side tidbit in there, but that's just me. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I know. I especially remember how crazy it was to figure out who was winning best supporting actor that year. Like, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman had won Critics' Choice, Sammy Lee Jones had won the SAG, while the eventual winner, Christoph Waltz, had won the Golden Globe and BAFTA. Mm-hmm. Yep. Then you just had Bobby De Niro there for the ride. And Alan Arkin. Oh, that's right. Shit, I forgot about him. Well, yeah, especially since he was in the Best Picture winner. Yep. So. Well, uh, next we have Helen Hunt, nominated for The Sessions. This is her second of two nominations, having won for As Good As It Gets back in the 90s. Going into this, she wins the Indie Spirit Award. And uh, she is recognized with the Golden Globes, BAFTA, SAG, and Critics' Choice. In the sessions, Helen Hunt plays Cheryl, a sex therapist working to assist a disabled man with understanding his body and his sexual desires. So, Joey, how do you feel about Helen Hunt in the sessions? Now that we get to talk about this, I can go into this director's cut version of this movie, which, Jeffrey, have, did you know there was a director's cut? I did not. Uh, in fact, okay. I, I actually haven't even seen this film until recently in preparation for this. Okay, well, at least you saw it, so kudos to you. Mm -hmm. um, director's Cut, I think, adds a great layer to 
this Helen Hunt character. Um, I remember seeing this movie originally when it came out, and I was like, holy shit, that accent is distracting as hell from the actual performance. And in review or revisiting this movie, my thoughts on it are, holy shit, this accent is direct, distracting as hell from this performance. It's still the same. Um, there's this weird, like, there's this weird tone she takes that just feels very out of place. Um, but in the director's cut, it opens her character up so you can understand her a little bit more. And I feel like that helped to distract me from the distraction that was her voice, if that makes any sense at all. Mm-hmm. The reason I say that is because it gives her more to do. Like, there's a whole subplot about, like, her and her kid. And it's it's really nice, actually. I like it like that extra little bit with her um there's a scene that i'm going to reference that's in the director's cut so you guys aren't going to know what it is but it's actually available on youtube you guys can check it out um where she picks up her son and she's in her station wagon and she's crying and her son is like why are you crying and it's and, and it's about this poem that she gets um and it's beautiful it really shows this humanity to this to this person who's not essentially a sex worker, but a sex therapist um, and kind of the uh, uh, the taboo thought process of that line of work. And it really opens her up for uh, human to, I can't fucking talk, uh, humanization. Um, with that said, I think she's a lead. I don't know if she's in the right category here. Um, I'd be interested to hear what you guys think about it. Uh, but Jeffrey, what about you? Well, I should point out that at the time of this recording, today happens to be Helen Hunt's 57th birthday. Happy birthday! Yeah, so as for her performance in the sessions, I think she's very good in it. When her character Cheryl first meets Mark O'Brien, played by John Hawks, she's just getting to know him before they start their first intercourse together. Though when she accidentally harms his right arm, that's when she starts to care for him. Not to mention that the next scene in the bathroom, I could see how much she was processing what she was about to do. Throughout the film, she continues to be helpful to Mark in teaching him about sexual intercourse, and they both grow to be more attracted to each other. That's something I usually love to watch unfold in any story, is when witnessing how the chemistry between two characters grows throughout. I especially liked how we, the audience, also got Cheryl's perspective when she documented what she was able to observe from him. And in terms of your observation, Joey, well, yeah, I can definitely see the case that she's definitely female lead. And, well, yeah, I can definitely see the case of it possibly being category fraud. Yeah, I really like her, actually, in this. I like this more than as good as it gets, I think. I find this character more interesting, and I also don't care for the accent. I found it a little bit distracting and kind of weird at times, and it does feel a little bit put on in certain moments. But as a whole, I find this character just more fleshed out in a way than as good as it gets, Um, but not going to try to compare the two too much. I also agree that this character leans a little bit more lead to me. There's, it's not just a screen time thing, but we get so much of her point of view and we get so much of her private life and so much of what goes on between these two characters is dependent upon her feelings 
and where she is going as a character. And she's just way too intertwined in the story for her to not be a lead in my opinion. Um, but I think she's great here. Uh, Helen Hunt, I, I failed to mention this one thing. She actually won a special award from um, uh, the Alliance of Female Film Critics. Or That's not the real term, but it, there's a group of female film critics. And she won a special award for uh, the way she confidently displayed her body and, and um, gave body positivity to this character and you know, sexual positivity. So I think that's really cool. Um, I think Helen Hunt has a, she has a real talent in this one for really showing us this character's thought process, kind of like what Jeffrey was alluding to a little bit in that scene with her in the bathroom. Like we really see her doing mental gymnastics as she finds herself caring for this person in a way that's different than other patients she's developing a bond that is that becomes troubling to her and she's perhaps a little bit afraid of where it will go so she tries to cut cut off the relationship at the fourth session as opposed to the sixth in the film uh, because you know they agree from the beginning it's only six sessions and that's how you know what's the, one of the things that distinguishes her from a sex worker and um i really like being able to see into a character's mind this is kind of the opposite of Amy Adams in The Master, yet I think both work in some weird way. But um, with Helen Hunt, I really dig being able to really see the gears turn and watching her try to map out where her life, her career, and this relationship will go with any given decision that she makes. Um, I think it's a really wonderful performance, but um, I think it also might be in the wrong lineup. And of all the Best Supporting Actress nominees from this year, she's the only one who you can safe to say isn't genuinely supporting. Yeah. Yeah, and and she's the closest to lead, definitely. And that's the thing, too, in the director's cut. You, you do get a lot more of her personally. So, I mean, if you think in the version you guys have seen that she's got a lot to do there, I mean... Just saying, like, it, there's she's lead. I'm actually, as we're talking right now, I'm sending you guys both the clip of what I was talking about, so don't forget about it. So you guys check that out later. But, um, okay, yeah, check, check, check out that version if you ever can. I mean, it's it, it's a great version, but she's lead. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, well, I, uh, well, it sounds to me that had the director's cut been the theatrical cut, she would have gone lead. Yeah, yeah, the theatrical cut is what um, voters would have been um, looking at. But um, like Joey was getting at, if the direct, you know, if she's already considered lead or borderline lead in the theatrical cut, then all these additional scenes definitely push her into that territory. Yeah. So our final uh, supporting actress of the year is Jackie Weaver, nominated for Silver Linings Playbook. Going into this, um, this is her second of two nominations, having been up for Animal Kingdom just a couple years prior. Her only win going into this is with the AARP Movies for Grownups Awards, and she doesn't really receive that many precursors as an individual. In fact, just about all of her precursors were ensemble nominations. So um, she doesn't really have many precursors to go over at all. And in Silver Linings Playbook, Jackie Weaver plays Dolores, and she is very good at making crabby snacks. So, Jeffrey, how do you feel? That's right. 
Jeffrey, how do you feel about Jackie and Silver Linings Playbook? Her nomination was definitely a big surprise. It just goes to show what a force Harvey Weinstein was in the Oscar race. A Silver Linings Playbook became the first film since Reds back in 1981 to score nominations in all four acting categories. As for Weaver's performance, her character doesn't have a whole lot to do in the film, though from the beginning I could tell that she really cares for her son, played by Bradley Cooper, as he struggles th with bipolar disorder. Not to mention that she probably has to be the most seen character in the whole movie. Oh, yeah. I also agree with that 100% regarding the scene character in the movie. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay, so remember earlier when I mentioned I'm going to come back to a performance in this lineup and wanted to asterisk my Anne Hathaway comment? Mm -hmm. Here it is. Okay, so Hath or Hathaway. So Weaver here is that quintessential what people would refer to as a coattail nomination. Indeed. And I, yes, and as much as that pains me to say, because I do love me some Jackie Weaver. Uh, as much as it pains me to say coattail nomination, I'm going to say she earned this nomination, and here's why. Um, number one, this was a character originally not meant for her. Um, uh, oh, fuck, name. Sense and Sensibility. And the that Disney movie. Um, what's her face? Um, Emma, Thompson? Emma Thompson. Thank you, yeah. Emma Thompson turned this role down. This was originally offered to her, and then Jackie got it as the second choice. Um, because she is the most seen in this movie, as you're watching it, it's almost like you are the Jackie Weaver character. You are the person looking at the outside, trying to figure all of this out. Um, Weaver's character really is the shield that is blocking Cooper and De Niro from killing each other throughout this movie. And when she doesn't really actually have a singular scene where she has like has a moment and this is why I want to asterisk this, because it's a short performance, but what she's giving you in every scene is a full fleshed out character. Um, and that's something Hathaway couldn't do with a small performance. So I think this is a great opposite of what you can do with a small performance. Um, and with that said too, I'm going to use the, the fight that happens, that physical brawl near the beginning of the film um, when the cops are called, when Jack Weaver's character accidentally gets hit by Cooper there's that part where, where De Niro and Cooper are literally punching each other and Weaver comes in and is screaming to stop it. Despite the ruckus that is happening, you're really focused on Weaver as a viewer. At least I was. Um, and I'd like to hear if, uh, both of you guys on that one. If I was the only one who really kind of bullseyed in on her because she, there's so much that she's trying to control that again you feel like her you feel like she's the audience like holy shit break this up um and i think because she can do that people don't give this movie enough or this role enough credit like literally people be like oh what did you do make crabby snacks and homemades no you're clearly not watching the movie well enough if you can't see that she's you she's the audience what mm -hmm. do you guys think i think that's a great point joey yeah i I agree for the most part, yeah. Um, I think it is easy to dismiss this nomination as a coattail, considering how little of the movie that she is in. But um, I also think that's somewhat disrespectful because she is quite good in this movie. Uh, she has such a vibrant presence. And Jackie Weaver has this talent 
for making you believe that her characters are absolutely real people, even when something ridiculous is happening or she's playing someone ridiculous, you know, not just looking at Silver Linings, but her entire career. But um, here in Silver Linings, she is 100% believable and delightful. She is such a kind hearted, warm person in this, in a way that I think this movie really needed, because there is a lot of tension in this film, and there's a lot of family turmoil and romantic turmoil and all that. And um, yes, she is sort of the audience surrogate in a way, because the other characters in this movie are all going through something very specific, relatable, but specific. And Weaver is sort of the, um, I don't want to say She's not a Greek chorus type character, but she is someone who I think the audience can look to for guidance when trying to um, consume or digest what is happening on screen. Um, she's also just simply wonderful. I think, I think Joey, you're right. Your eye does continue to go to her in different moments, even when she's not really doing anything, quote unquote. Um, she has a real talent for that. I'm not sure what it is about Jackie Weaver, but um, she ought to be doing more just in general. We actually have a question now that we're done with um, the supporting actresses, uh, which was funny because we didn't really have any questions. All of our questions come in to the lead category. However, from our good ass German, Christoph, should Judy Dench have been nominated for Skyfall? And how close did she actually get to being the first acting nominee for a Bond film? Um, I, I don't know, because I remember being really disappointed with seeing Skyfall. I've only seen it once. Like, I saw it after it had been so hyped up, and I think it was put on such a pedestal that I'd have to rewatch it to fully embrace it again. Um, I know she was close. She was really close to being the first, but uh, I would say as of now, no. Jeffrey? Uh, I'm going to have to agree with you, although I think Javier Bardem might have been closer to a nomination than Judy uh, Dench. Yes. Yeah, and, and I've only seen Skyfall once when it first came out, and, and well, I don't really remember much of what I thought of her performance, so, I mean, then again... Movies like the James Bond franchise, well, they're just typically never really in the Academy's wheelhouse, at least not in the major above-the-line categories. Mm -hmm. I, I remember liking her in Skyfall. Um, Judy Dench and Sam Mendes and all the other people involved in that movie sort of take the character of M in a new direction and actually give the character agency. So often in the Bond films, M is just sort of the head honcho sitting behind a desk who gives a few good lines to Bond and then sends him on his way and then might have a scene at the very end. Uh, but here in Skyfall, we get so much more of the character. It's a little bit more well-rounded. And I think she is quite good in it. Um, would I give her a nomination for it? I'm not sure. But considering we all think Helen Hunt shouldn't be here, sure, why not give her Helen Hunt spot? <laughs> I was actually going to wait to comment on that. But I'm glad that you did now. I'll okay. just leave it at that. Um, I would also like to point out, before we get to lead... And again, I think I might be crazy with this. So if you, if anyone can find this article, please add us. Um, at least when it came to Jackie Weaver, anyone, uh, if anyone gave hella support to Jackie Weaver, it was actually Susan Sarandon because she went on record for saying that she did a straight lined voting ticket for Silver Linings Playbook. Mm -hmm. um, and she was a big uh, campaigner for Weaver in that. So 
you know, she had Sarandon in her corner at least. So, you know, I'd be interested to always see where the voting tallies were. So if anyone is going to hack into WikiLeaks or anything like that, can y'all give us the fucking tallies of these <laughs> voting? That'd be great. Just saying. I think it's fun when actors say they voted a straight ticket. If, I'm, if I remember correctly, I'm pretty sure Bradley Cooper said he voted a straight ticket for Lady Bird a few years ago. Interesting. I think he said, yeah. think he said that somewhere. I can't remember if that's true. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Well, hell yeah. Fucking go straight tickets. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. So our leading actress nominees of 2012 were... Jessica Chastain, Zero Dark Thirty. Jennifer Lawrence, Silver Linings Playbook. Okay, let us start off with, again, the bookend. So let's start off this year with the youngest nominee in this category ever. And then we'll end it with the oldest. So we had, uh, first up, Quivenjane Wallace as Hush Puppy in Beasts of the Southern Wild. This is her sole nomination so far. These precursors show that it can be performance and not precursors that get you in because I find this fascinating. She wins Critics' Choice for Best Young Actor, but it is nominated at Critics' Choice for Best Actress. Again, different categories for actors and actresses and, and, and categories of film when it comes to Critics' Choice. Nominated at The Spirits, and then the National Board of Review gives her the win for Break the Performance. So her real only, quote-unquote, two Best Actress nominations were at The Spirits and The Critics. So with that said, in Beasts, again, Quivenjane plays Hush Puppy, is a little girl who escapes reality in her imagination. Her reality with her father, her mother, um, and it is pretty much a fairy tale of where the mind can take you as she leads the charge through her entire story. Um, Jeffrey, you started us off in supporting, start us off in lead, what do you think? Okay, and I should point out that, well, Quivenjane was nine years old when she got the nomination, but she was only six when she filmed Beasts of the Southern Wild, though five when she first auditioned for it. And for, for her very first acting job, that's quite an accomplishment. And as for her work in the movie, from the beginning, there appears to be a sense of innocence about her character Hush Puppy. I liked how despite their faulty relationship, she really cares for her father, played by Dwight Henry. I even felt for them when they both lost their home in a storm. At such a young age, Quivenjane proved to be very capable of carrying a movie all by herself. And thank God she did not go supporting like other child performances that were nominated, such as Tina O'Neill and Haley Steinfeld. <laughs> Brandon, I love that note. So I'm a really big fan of this movie, and um, I think Wallace is fantastic in it. Um, it's crazy that you can be you can be such a force to be reckoned with when you're only six, you know, or six or seven whenever she made this movie. And she is such a, a specificity to her performance and she seems to be so 
in it. Like she is truly living in the moment when she's um, performing here. She doesn't feel like a child actor who's just going through the motions and, you know, hitting their mark and saying the line and sort of being coached every step of the way. Um, of course, I'm just watching the movie. I wasn't there when they filmed it, but it feels like Quivangine Wallace really lived this character and really became her and really understands her, I would say. Um, she has quite a commanding presence in this. Uh, just her looks alone um, can give you shivers. And the way she recites her dialogue is so genuine and, and really striking in a way. It doesn't feel like she's putting on a show. She's simply being this kid. And I also think her voiceover work is especially good. Um, I would imagine they film the voiceover stuff well after they shot this. I think if you listen carefully, it even sounds like she's a little bit older, but I buy that because the vo voiceover is so often um, a tool of recollection. So it would make sense why she would sound more mature in those voiceover moments. Um, of course, she would also have to be telling the story after the events um, happened naturally. But it all kind of comes together and works for me. This is a very strong debut performance. And I really admire that the Academy was willing to nominate it. Not just her, but this movie itself. This does not feel like a Best Picture nominee when you watch it. It, it feels very outside of the Academy's wheelhouse in pretty much every regard. So um, all things considered, I think this film and Wallace are triumphant in every way. Yeah, um, this was the film that I looked forward to most out of Sundance this year or that year. Um, I love this movie. This is one of my favorite films of the, this last decade. And I, it's one of those films that I will cry at every time because it's so beautiful. This was a small independent film that was, I'm pretty sure it was actually, yeah, it was non-union. It was, quote unquote, never going to be taken seriously. And it became the smash hit of the Oscars because it was the little film that could. Well, yeah, especially, and, when, especially when the director, Ben Zeitlin, snuck in to best director over another Ben, Mr. Affleck. Yeah, I mean, th that just showed you right there the power that this film had. And, uh, I mean, <sighs> Quivengine in this movie, God, she doesn't speak on, on screen for the first 15 minutes of it because what people don't, at least what people don't really realize is that the whole celebration and the whole fireworks and the, and the, and the, and the poster artwork for it come from the, the uh, essentially the prologue of this book on, on screen. That's how I explain Beast of the Southern Wilds people. It, it's a visual book. Um, and, uh, you know, it really makes me upset when people are like, oh, it's just the editors that made her look well. Shut up! Because editors, <laughs> seriously, editors also edit adult performances. It's not like editors only edit fucking kid performances. Like, your theory behind that doesn't hold to shit. 
like what she did for a first time actress at the age of six when she made this movie she brought shame to actors who've been doing it 20 years because why there's a natural raw talent and when you harness that natural raw talent it shines and that is what ben zeitlin was able to do with quivengine and quivengine being six should know with that type of pain at six she should know that type of anger it was in her fucking beautiful and it made i mean she's 17 her mom is actually really really smart and with with really quote-unquote controlling her her career because her mom allows her to only do so many projects and really makes her focus on school and she doesn't she her mom didn't want her to become the Lindsay lohan of her generation essentially and so she's 17 now she'll be 18 next year which is crazy to me because i feel like we've watched quivengine essentially as an audience we've known her since she was six you know what i mean um so i'm sure when she hits 18 like she's still wrapped with william morris um and all that so she's still high up in the in the rankings but like we've seen her control the screen in annie a couple years later but so we've seen that she can do it and we know that she can do it and i'm excited to see what else she can bring because she brought everything here and i i ate it up like a fucking i sopped it up with a biscuit Mm -hmm. i get choked up when I watch this movie and I think a lot of it has to do with her performance. This movie like awakens like weird memories in me that have really nothing to do with what's going on in the movie. Like I I don't connect literally with the events that are going on in the movie. But I don't know what it is. This this movie has this weird magic to it where it just really taps into this thing that's specific to me and pulls mm-hmm. feelings out of me. And I think Quivangine Wallace is a large part of that yeah it's the director and the cinematography and the score and all that too but I, but she's she's the vehicle you know the yeah. that's connecting to the audience directly via the camera so um i think this is a wonderful um nomination i was actually really disappointed that we didn't receive a single question about quavengine in here we're actually about to get to all of our questions here with the last four but that was a bit disappointing um, with that said, let's go into this year's winner, Jennifer Lawrence, as Tiffany in Silver Linings Playbook. This is her second of two, I'm sorry, her second of four nominations and her only win. Um, she's a big threat here this year. She wins the Golden Globe for Actress in a Comedy Musical. She wins a uh, Critics' Choice for Actress in a Comedy. She wins at the Spirits, beating Quavengine, which, I'm sorry, but as the Spirits for indie films... Silver Linings Playbook is not an independent film. Let's just, I'm going to point that out there. But anyway, she wins there. LA Film Critics, uh, she wins, but she ties with Emmanuel Riva, and she wins at SAG. Therefore, her only nominations came in the form of BAFTA, Critics' Choice for Lead Actress, and the New York Film Critics Association. In Silver Linings, again, Jennifer plays Tiffany, who is a newly, not divorced, but newly widowed woman who also deals with... um, uh, mental issues who it is known as the town or as the company ho but has a heart of gold and really just tries to find her way through the situation she's in so brandon talk to us about jennifer lawrence's tiffany and silver linings well jennifer lawrence um gives you a lot in this movie um it's a natural role to receive an oscar nomination And that's not to say that she was, you know, just playing connect to the dots or phoning it in or anything. It's a role that just gives her a lot of opportunities. Um, 
she gets to be crazy, quote unquote, and she has moments of sorrow and humor and um, heartbreak and all sorts of stuff. It's a it's a performance that's designed to really showcase a performer. And I think Jennifer Lawrence really takes advantage of all of those moments and good for her because it worked out. Um, it's not a performance that I'm necessarily um, in love with. I get the love for it. And I understand why some people um, see themselves in a person like Tiffany or they see their sister or their cousin or an ex-girlfriend as this character uh, because kind of like Jackie Weaver, she kind of feels real even when she feels very extra, as the kids say. Um, <laughs> to, to touch on your um, independent film question, um, I agree with you. Uh, this movie really rides the line of that definition. And uh, I know someone that worked on I think it was, was it, it was another Harvey Weinstein movie. It was, I think the one he had just done before this as a production coordinator. And we were just like talking one day and he had said how at the Indie Spirit Awards, they have like in their definitions of what makes an independent film, the budget is one of those criteria. And every few years it would change. It would go up by just a little bit. And that was usually due to Harvey Weinstein. Because he was of trying to put, he was. He, yeah, he was trying to put more money into his movies to give them that production value and to attract bigger stars. But he still wanted the glory of the award season. So um, kind of like how um, Disney influences copyright laws every time one of their things goes into public domain. Uh, I guess Harvey Weinstein had something to do with Film Independent Spirit Awards every time um, he wanted to win some more awards. But um, I digress. Uh, Jennifer Lawrence, I think, is a uh, I, I was going to say she's a whole lot of fun in this movie, but um, she is also a very tormented person, so I don't want to give the wrong impression. Uh, but as a viewer, she gives you a lot to digest. And um, it's a performance that I enjoy watching, even if I'm not completely on board with it, if that makes any sense. Um, Jeffrey, how do you feel about her? I think she's great in the movie. At the time of when they filmed it, Jennifer Lawrence was only 21 years old, taking on a character who was supposed to be several years older than her. She played a widow who had recently been unemployed by her job, and it's so much fun to watch her chemistry with Bradley Cooper grow throughout the film as they go from bickering with each other to feeling for each other. While I'm aware that this movie was already based on novel, Watching Jennifer Lawrence's character unfold felt just like something you'd read in one. I could tell in her performance that her character had already been through a lot in life. I also loved how she was just no-nonsense when it came to her brutally honest thoughts on stuff like football. Not to mention that at a couple points, in, at a couple points with her in the film, I saw no acting at all. First, while watching her have a complete breakdown that started in the diner, then followed right onto the streets, then when she went to Bradley Cooper's house to confront him and his family. Her performance in both those scenes, to me, especially looked and felt so real. So, I'm gonna, I keep bouncing off of your points here, which I appreciate. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm gonna be the opposite here, though. I think this is too mature of a role for her while i don't hate this i don't love this couple cu couple notes number one let me start with that this is 
she's too young for this role. I don't believe for a second that this 21 year old is already at the stage of her life where she is married, divorced, fired, having a pretty much full blown breakdown at 21. I'm sure it happens. That's fine. But when you look at who was, who was supposed to put, like Jennifer Lawrence, I think was like the fourth or fifth choice for this role. It started in Angelina Jolie's lap. Then it got to Anne Hathaway. Then it got to Rooney Mara. Oh, so she was fourth. And then I believe it got to Jennifer Lawrence. It doesn't work for me. Um, I also to, and also again, writing your comments here, um, the diner scene, her, her Oscar clip, I think is one of the worst Oscar clips ever. Like, she seems so forced because I'm just so crazy. <laughs> I mean, the way she delivers that line is so cringeworthy that I remember when they showed that clip at the Oscars, I literally turned to the person who I was next to and was like, are you fucking kidding me? That's what they gave? Like, no. Um, it just, this acting is all about pretending who you aren't. I get that. And I, and I get that there are actors who age and makeup and play older, but I'm, I'm just going to say it. Jennifer Lawrence's mental capacity that she's bringing to this role wasn't mature enough for this role. It doesn't work for me. It feels so forced and it just, it, it, I'm not caring about Tiffany the way I think that you're supposed to care. Um, she kind of felt like that kid in school who's like, nan and a boo boo. I'm going to tell like that was Tiffany and that is Jennifer Lawrence's Tiffany. So I kind of look at this one and I'm like, girl, no. So that's just me. Yeah. I get the, um, the want for an older, more mature actress in this role. I definitely see Anne Hathaway in this. Now that you mention it, because the moment you said Anne Hathaway, I thought of um, love and other drugs, which yeah. she plays she dropped a... out to do that. So she, it's a similar, similar-ish kind of role. And I actually really like Anne Hathaway in that movie, which I, apparently is like a hot take. I guess there's a lot of people that don't think she's very good in that movie, but I dig it. But um, I definitely see how a more mature actress could have tackled it a little bit differently and made it a little bit more grounded. I actually, for some reason, don't mind how big she gets and how quote-unquote forced it feels at times because there's there's a lot of people I know who have certain mental illnesses I mean just to put it vaguely and um that that bigness is not uncommon and um so I guess I don't really mind it I'm trying not to sound judgmental but mm -hmm. when I when I see the performance I can see why certain people might really resonate with it or mm. see a, or more, perhaps more likely see a loved one someone who they are close with who is troubled and has um breakdowns and whatnot perhaps in public which might fuel the entire thing and make it even worse so i agree that it is a little bit too big at times but for some reason i don't mind it as much but then again like i said earlier i'm still not completely sold on it and kind of in this weird I get it but don't like it sort of place understood
Well, a friend of mine, he, well, he personally thought Silver Linings Playbook was overrated. He thought that David Russell made his, the actors in this film, as well as American Hustle, give performances that he thought were so over the top at times where the movie doesn't feel like it's grounded in reality. What's your response to that? Um, I mean, we haven't talked about American Hustle yet, so I don't want to give too much away. Um. So I, I, I guess I, I will say this as this. I think a Russell struggles with his characters. I think there are actors who can portray well grounded characters. And I mean, I, I will use De Niro, Cooper, and Weaver here in this film as an example. But then if you look at American Hustle and even Joy and uh, Jennifer Lawrence here, they kind of feel so out of place. Like they're not really directed on where to go. And I think o. Russell struggles with that. So that's what I'm going to say on that topic for now. Yeah, I think he's good at um, attracting actors with talent. I don't know that they're always right for the roles, but I think yeah. a lot of his actors tend to make it their own and occasionally really make it stick. Um, sometimes performances in his films feel a little wandering and loose and I think that's part of his style as a director but um I usually like usually with O'Russell's films the performances are what I like the most or I like what his actors are doing but as a director I'm not sure that they always come together as a whole you know mm -hmm. it feels like I like the pieces but not the entire jigsaw puzzle yeah, it also makes me wonder too. Like, if for, one of my favorite things about David Russell is the fight with Lily Tomlin, because I just want—I just mm -hmm. love watching Lily Tomlin rip him a new asshole. <laughs> is what did Jackie Weaver do to him? The fact that she's the only one in this ensemble out of the main characters, and I'm not kind of Chris Tucker because he's not a main character. Um, out of the main group, to not get a role in anything else because everyone else has worked with him in Hustle and Joy, and it's like poor Weaver still at you know, at the, at the starting line, like, hello. So makes me wonder. All right. We are going into Naomi Watts as Maria in the, the actual, the actual title for this movie, because it's a Spanish production is low impossible, which translates into the impossible. But so for Naomi Watts as Maria and low impossible, this is her second of two nominations. Um, she really only gets, Three nominations for Precursors. Golden Globe for Best Actress in a Drama, Critics' Choice for Best Actress, and SAG. Um, in Low Impossible, again, Naomi plays Maria, who this movie tells the story of a family, of a Spanish family, who go to Thailand during the um, tsunami of the mid-2000s that wreaked havoc and made worldwide news and their story of survival. So, Brandon, let's talk about Naomi as Maria in Low Impossible. Um, well, I think it'd be, um, impossible. I'm not positive on that, but, uh, just dropping that before someone, you know, decides to tweet it. Um, <laughs> this is a, tr uh, difficult performance to watch. Uh, you're basically watching Naomi Watts, uh, suffer for a hundred minutes. Cause I mean like 10 ish minutes into this movie, this tsunami hits and I don't know how the fuck she survived. First of all. But uh, she's banged up as all hell, uh, bleeding profusely from her leg. Her one tit is like three quarters of the way ripped off and it's just like dangling in the wind. It's 
kind of disgusting, yet I'm weirdly fascinated by it. Um, but she is in so much pain throughout this movie. And uh, it's uh, not easy to watch a lot of the time. Um, after a while, I'm afraid that I sort of tune out and it kind of plateaus for me. And that's not necessarily her fault as a performer. I think that's just the nature of a movie that starts out at a 10, um, or at least starts out with its inciting incident at a 10. And um, it kind of gets a little stale to me after a while, even though she is definitely in it as a performer for that basically entire runtime even though she's sort of incapacitated for a lot of the final third of the film. Um, but even then, she is um, captivating as hell on her almost deathbed. But um, yeah, it's, a, it's not an easy performance to watch. <laughs> well, before I give my thoughts, I thought I'd share that I actually remember when the Indian Ocean tsunami happens in 2004. It's literally made headlines all over the world. As for Naomi Watts' performance in the film, in the beginning, I could already tell how much she cared for her sons, one of them being played by some kid named Tom Holland. I wonder what he's been up to lately. <laughs> yeah. I also thought she shared some great chemistry with her husband, played by Ewan McGregor. When the tsunami hit, I felt the emotional and physical pain she goes through. When she's later weak in the hospital, I was really rooting for her to make it. When her surgery begins, it feels almost as if her whole life is flashing before her eyes. Not to mention that the last scene in the film when she's staring out the window of an airplane to see the whole chaos of Thailand that was left behind from the tsunami, that really brought tears to my eyes. Yeah, um, I saw this in theaters, again, like I mentioned in the beginning. And I was really touched by this movie revisiting it i wasn't touched as much not mainly because i don't think that i i mean i knew obviously what happened but what really got me in this movie was the cinematography and the score um that's my first note regarding the performance i think if you guys remember i gave naomi watts the win in 21 grams over charlie Theron and monster back in 03 and so going into this episode she's got one from me and usually that kind of holds a torch for where i could go however i'm a little worried for a couple of reasons number one most of this movie is her grunting and crying her oscar clip is that scene right after they finally find some other people to help and she's just like thank you thank you thank you it it kind of shows that they had a struggle to find a clip for her because she's not really given anything else to do in this movie, but as Brandon stated, have her tit ripped off pretty much and get beat the fuck up and try not to die, which again, don't really know how she did that. Um, or did not, 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 not die. I can't fucking talk today. I can't ever talk really. But anyway, um, I like it, but I'm not convinced. And why I'm not convinced is because I don't think she was given anything to do here. Also, I don't think she's in the right category. Um, there's a point where she's literally gone for the last chunk of this movie. And the movie becomes all about Tom Holland. In fact, I would even argue that she's not in the movie really past the halfway point. Um, because she's just in a hospital bed. 
showing up to show that she's just lost a shit ton of blood. Thoughts on that? What do you think? So I know a lot of people say she's in the wrong category, but I'm actually okay with it. Um, I see the argument for it, uh, but so much of what happens in the first, like, two-thirds of this movie, um, we're following her. I think she's in more than just the first half. I think it's a little bit more than that. And even when she's incapacitated, we're always coming back to her. And, um, you know, I feel like it's one of those performances where if they had gone supporting with her, people would be shouting category fraud in the opposite direction. It's one (laughs) of those weird performances that, that... would probably not never please everybody. Um, but I do agree with your um, assessment that she doesn't really have an Oscar clip or an Oscar moment. It's sort of a performance that's dragged, and I mean dragged, throughout the entire movie. So um, I'm okay with her being in lead. I don't find it that troubling. Yeah, and I think it's kind of similar to the movie Room, where Brie Larson is the female lead, but her son, played by Jacob Tremblay, gets his share of screen time separated from her. And while Naomi Watts may not have enough screen time in The Impossible to justify being lead, her character is still a very important part of the story. Um, Okay, we have Jessica Chastain as Maya in Zero Dark Thirty. This is her second of two nominations, but our first time getting to talk about her. Yay! Um she was a force to be reckoned with as well going into this. Golden Globe win for Best Actress in a Drama. Uh, National Board of Review win for Best Actress. And then a Critics' Choice win for Best Actress. So she actually wins the Actress category at Best Actress, or for the Actress there. She's nominated at BAFTA. She's nominated at the National Society Film Critics, the New York Film Critics, and SAG. Um, in Zero Dark Thirty, again, Jessica plays Maya, who is the special agent who studies the case against the attacks on American soil uh, from Osama bin Laden regarding 9-11. And it it really chronicles the story of how they went to capture and kill bin Laden, Um, directed by the first female director to ever win best director at the Oscars, Catherine Bigelow. Um, Jeffrey, what do you think about Jessica Chastain as Maya in Zero Dark Thirty? In the beginning, Jessica Chastain's performance to me came across as passive, though about an hour into the film, I did feel for her when she found out that her colleague, played by Jennifer Ely, died in a bombing. However, I remember some people took issue with the fact that they didn't feel personal connection with Jessica Chastain's character in Zero Dark Thirty. Personally, I happen to agree with them. It's not Chastain's fault at all, because she does give a great performance. But the thing is that she's only playing a reactive character. She just spends a lot of the time throughout the whole movie reacting to events that are going on around her. You also really don't know anything about Maya other than her mission and what she does. I understand where people are coming from when they say they feel um, closed off from this character. Um, But I think that's a choice. I think that's something that is consciously happening in this movie. Um, I think Maya is, in, I don't know if antisocial is the right word, but she's someone who is very involved in her work and is very passionate about what she does. So I can understand why audiences didn't feel as though they were being invited into this character's life or her mind. Um, because I don't think that's really something that Maya really did all that much as a person. Um, it feels like anytime someone tries to get close to her in the movie, it's because the other person attempted it. Um, I see what Jeffrey's saying with how she's a pretty reactive person, um, as opposed to being proactive, but I'm not entirely sure I buy that completely. 
she definitely has a lot of moments of reaction because I think that's the nature of her job here, especially early on. She's sort of um, observing and uh, guiding and giving notes from the sidelines. And it's not until she develops um, uh, some respect, so to speak, among the people around her that she starts really taking charge. Um, we especially see that later on in the movie as we're getting closer to the attack on Bin Laden's compound where she is outright confronting people like the, um, oh, what's his name? The guy from Friday Night Lights and all that. Yeah, he was in like Kyle every Oscar-nominated movie. Yeah, that guy. Like Kyle Chandler and like um, Jeremy Strong, I think is the other guy. When she like straight up confronts people and is like writing on the glass wall how many days it's been since they have done anything active. You know, so she's not someone who's inactive by choice. I think that's the nature of her work. And that is what's so frustrating to her as a person. Because this movie takes place over many years. That is like how long it took these people to achieve this one mission so i think you also see her uh, chipping away or deteriorating a little bit steadily as the movie goes on as this mission really pulls at her from every direction and the mission itself and the people she's attempting to work with keep pushing her down um but it ends up working out in the end, uh, their mission's success. And I love that final moment on the plane when she's the only one on the plane and the, the pilot asks her, where are we going? And she just has this moment of silence where she realizes it's over. What do I do now? Where do I go? I have nothing. And um, I think it's a really powerful, touching moment. Uh, this is a, even though it's a character who does not always let you in, it's a character who I find myself rooting for through pretty much the duration of the film. Yeah, um, this was such an experience to witness in the theater as a film. Um, like I said, I was 20 in 2012. So I was just coming out of high school when Osama Bin Laden was killed. And obviously we all lived through 9-11. And so we know the emotional effect that nine, I mean, I was in my fourth grade math class when my teacher turned on the television and we witnessed the crumbling of the Twin Towers. So we all remember where we were that day. So then you pop two years later when we find out that Osama Bin Laden was killed, we all remember where we were that day. So then to literally witness essentially, I'm gonna say our, because we're kind of all the same age, our childhood in the matter of two and a half hours was an experience in itself. And that I will always hold uh, thanks to Catherine Bigelow for doing. Regarding the performance, I think what Chastain does here is beautiful. I really, really, really like what she does. Um, when we meet Maya, it's noted that she is fresh out of high school because she was recruited right out of school. Um, and while I had an issue with Lawrence playing young, Chastain actually read as read out of high school to me because she's so she knows that she's a small fish in a big pond and it worked here whereas like I said with Lawrence it did not however um, Chastain really shows the emotional toll that a decades-long chase puts on a person and that comes from loss 
and essentially being married to your job. Um, now, I do think that there's a point in this movie, and we'll get to it in a question here in moments, but there's a point where Chastain is gone for the last third of this movie and really is only shown in quick flashes um, from, the, from the control center. And I think there gets to a point where we know what's coming, but we miss her character. And that is a pure testament to the brilliance of her acting. So where despite the action that's happening in front of us, we really miss her. We miss Maya. So to that, I tip my hat and I say, good fucking job, Chastain. Good job. I wouldn't say it's an entire third of the movie that she's gone for, but it is like a solid 15 or 20 minutes in this like two and a half plus hour movie. So it does feel like a solid chunk of time, but I wouldn't say it's a, a third. But well, yeah, you do not have there's a portion of the movie where she is you know not on screen the, i i believe and please correct me if i'm wrong if anyone hears this and corrects me if you know please do i i believe the last portion of that movie with that is exactly like 27 and a half minutes long mm-hmm. where she's where she's not there okay yeah so, sounds about right yeah i mean there she's really not in the last part of the movie but again if if, if i'm wrong i will i will totally fess up to it but i'm pretty sure when i looked it up that's what it was but i mean i for me at least there's that point where i'm like where's maya i need maya where is she and that's what i was really trying to portray here i guess in my description of my feelings Mm -hmm. i hope it came across so oh yeah okay (laughs) all right (laughs) well um we've got some let me see actually if we can answer this ah speaking of that from sarcastic alien was jessica chastain's absence during the climax of zero dark 30 the reason she lost to jennifer lawrence brandon thoughts um perhaps uh because she is gone for that chunk of the film and it is noticeable that she's gone um i think if i'm not sure what else bigelow would have done though because cutting away from the action to give excessive reaction shots might have um, lessened the blow of what was happening on the ground um, in the mission. And the whole movie is leading up to this operation. So it, it feels just from a director's standpoint why you would really want to focus on the nitty gritty that is happening right there um, at the compound. But um, I can see why it might have um, turned some people off, considering you got your lead performer who is gone for, you know, a sizable portion of this film. So it's a, I don't know if it was a deal breaker for voters, but I could see why people might be more likely to gravitate toward Lawrence, who is in her film more steadily throughout. I guess maybe, but it probably wouldn't surprise me if there were at least some Academy members who had some of the same criticisms of her character as I did. Plus, let's not forget that, you know, Zero Dark Thirty pretty much lost momentum by the time the Oscars took place. When the film came... Yeah, I was about to say, when the film came out, it was plagued with controversy for various reasons. In fact, if there were only five Best Picture nominees that year, I think it's possible that Zero Dark Thirty could have been snubbed. 
we've seen in the past that just because your previous film won Best Picture doesn't mean your next film is going to do just as well. For example, Moonlight achieved such a historic victory on Oscar nights in 2016, yet Barry Jenkins' follow-up film, If Beale Street Could Talk, rarely underperformed the nominations, even missing the cut for Best Picture. At that point, Academy members start writing you off a little as yesterday's news. I think that's pretty much what happens with Catherine Bigelow. By the time she came back into the race after achieving such a historic win with the Hurt Locker, voters were probably just ready to move on. It's also worth noting that the one Oscar Zero Dark Thirty ended up winning was Best Sound Editing in a tie with Skyfall. Yeah, I, I'm just going to leave it at this. I think there are there's two words that really only pull Jennifer Lawrence's win over Chastain here for this specific question, and that is Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. That's yeah. it. That's it. I, I mean, personally, I don't think it has to do with the last part of her being around because for me, like I mentioned in my review, I, there's, I, even though I know what's happening, I want Maya. So like you, she's in the back of your mind. She's there. It's not like she, she did a performance where she was just not there. You know what I mean? So yeah. I would huh. just say it was Harvey Weinstein. Yeah. I think so often we focus on the movie too much and uh, so much of what happens at the Oscars is a uh, political and, all that nonsense so yeah so our final nominee this year is the late great emmanuel riva as anne in amour um this is her sole nomination which just fucking i just can't wrap my head around um she was also a really big possibility this night she wins bafta in one of my favorite bafta moments when you see uh, David O. Russell's salty ass trying to understand how she won. Fuck you, O. Russell. Um, uh, and also- especially worth, uh, I would like to point out that when, uh, when before, my, as Michael Douglas and Jane Fonda were about to announce the best director winner in that year, when you see the shot of where David O. Russell was supposed to be, they accidentally put on Emmanuel Riva. Ha! <laughs> Shade. I like that. Um, she also wins the César Award, which is the French Academy Award for Best Actress. And again, she ties with the Los Angeles Film Critics Association with Jennifer Lawrence and Best Actress, and she wins the National Society of Film Critics for Best Actress, where her only nominations came in were Critics' Choice for Best Actress and the New York Film Critics Association for Best Actress. Now, in uh, Amour, Amanda Riva again plays Anne, who is a music teacher who has a stroke, and slowly, slowly you see her wither away to eventual death. And her reality of her family dealing with this and where it ultimately leads her, which I guess in the end, I guess, again, is death. Um, so, Brandon, start us off. Emmanuel Riva. So, like, um, like we were saying with Naomi Watts and The Impossible, in that film, you are watching someone suffer for two hours. Here, with a more the audience suffers for two hours. Um, I think that's a key difference between these two performances. Um, Emmanuel Riva is definitely going through something, but I, f- I feel as though I was more connected with this misery than I was with the impossible. Um, Emmanuel Riva is a very subtle and specific performer, and it's a performance that really draws you in sort of unlike um, Maya in Zero Dark Thirty. And um, we get to know her pretty well um, early on. And her, um, I don't know, 
I don't want this to sound judgmental, but her descent, you know, into where she ends up over the course of this movie is so intricate and careful and instrumental throughout. There are like little tiny baby steps that she is taking so that it doesn't feel like we're getting these big 180 moments where all of a sudden there's just an explosion of um, pain or mental anguish um, unlike Jennifer Lawrence and Silver Linings Playbook to keep comparing her to her uh, co-nominees. Um, this is a movie that's difficult to watch. Uh, it's, well, it's a very slow film. So I think that is a turnoff for a lot of people, but I think that actually enhances the movie's strength. It really takes its time in telling this story and getting you to know this person and care. It also takes its time, I think, in order to get you to put yourself in her place, or at least I was doing that while watching it. I was thinking about like, my potential elderly future mm -hmm. with like with Seth and like if one of us were in this position and if one of us were in the other position of you know the husband how it would all go um I also really I was really struck by her hmm, by her 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 suicidal nature uh when she reaches that moment in her well-being or lack thereof i should say um because you know as i am as i said in a previous episode i've struggled with that myself so while watching her unravel and come to terms with things and wanting the best for her caregiver i really understood in a way where she was coming from and it felt very I don't know if universal is the right word, but it felt very understandable why she would why she would be contemplating that. Um, this, this feels like a very three-dimensional performance in every way. And um, I think it's a movie that more people should um, watch. I would, I mean, I would guess that in this best actress lineup, it maybe is the most underseen by general audiences. I know film people are always going to watch a film like Amour with, a, you know, Michael Haneke as the director, or however you say his name. I think I've heard his name said like three different ways, so I don't know. But um, I think it's one that people should really take the time to sit down and watch, because I, I have a feeling that people would really relate um, to this story, especially people who are a little bit older, perhaps have older parents, they might really get something out of a movie like this. Um, maybe it might unlock something from deep within themselves, um, like I kind of experienced when watching Beasts of the Southern Wild. So um, yeah, I really like this performance and I think this movie is um, quite something. So Jeffrey, how do you feel about it? Well. Okay, so more was the last film I watched in preparation for this. As I was watching it, it did take time for me to get invested in Emmanuel Riva's character. And, and I will say from the beginning, she definitely had quite an elegant screen presence. And so hold on. Uh, and, and she and her husband, played by Jean-Louis T. I'm not going to even bother trying to pronounce his last name. They both... 
<laughs> they both have great chemistry together, but when she became paralyzed, that's why I started to care for her, as I was able to see the struggles she was going through, like with trying to stand and all that, yeah. And I also thought she had some great scenes that took place later on in the film, both with Jean-Louis and their daughter, played by Isabelle Huppert. Mmm, Isabelle Huppert. Oh, I am so... Side note, I am so excited to eventually get to 2016 to talk about Isabelle Huppert because that we should have been talking about her this entire time over the 30 years or that we've been talking about these categories now. So I'm really excited that we could talk about her a little bit with this. Um, I agree with both of you, but I also disagree with both of you. Let me start with this. I disagree on the fact of Brandon that you get to know Anne before this happens because literally the day after we meet her which is like the second or third scene she has her first stroke so we for me I don't really get that we know Anne as a person before this happens um and I think that was purposely done by uh Michael Hanukkah because (sighs) I feel like there'd be too much sorrow right off the bat. Now, this is a very sorrowful movie. I actually, for some reason, just uh, shout out to Justin Priest for pulling me through, uh, one of our favorite Kentuckians. Um, I texted him that night. I was like, girl, I just watched, <laughs> I watched The Impossible and a more back-to-back in a revisit. And he's like, why do you hate yourself? Um, because it's they're both obviously just such heavy films. Um, with that said, I think because of the heaviness that Amor brings on a person, um, if we had known Anne beforehand, we really would have just been full of sorrow. Now, what we're getting to know is Anne during this stage, which brings as a viewer, at least again for me, was sorrow and frustration and at times hatred and at times loving, like this loving demeanor. And the fact that we just want to hug her and make it all better. And I think that was intentionally done. Um, Because the character itself, Ian really doesn't have lines in this movie. Um, What Riva has to work with is the acting of her body and her emotion. And I think that she does it fucking brilliantly. As we know by now, I'm a huge fan of French film. Um... It's a language that I've studied that I would like to be more fluent in. Um, you know, I, I, I have a very vast love of French cinema. Um, and I think this was brilliantly done. Riva obviously passed a couple of years ago. She had cancer, which was really sad. So she never really got to capitalize on this Oscar at all. Not in her homeland of France, nor her American audience. But I cannot stress enough, uh, if anyone wants more amazing Riva performances, the biggest one that stands out of this is um, Hiroshima, or Hiroshima One and More, um, which is, she was also nominated for BAFTA for, it was brilliant. Um, Riva in this, really, I, I see a lot of my own grandmother in it, um, with my grandmother dealing with like dementia and Alzheimer's, so I have, I have a very big connection to this movie. Um, but this is not a movie that I think is like, oh, the feel-good family film of 2012. This is not a movie that I see myself really revisiting ever again, just because it is so heavy. But it will also always stand with me as like 
a fucking grade A performance. Yeah, a uh, couple things. Uh, just because I recently came under mild fire for this on Twitter recently, I'm just gonna um, note this is this movie is from Austria, but it is francophone, uh, so French language, but it's from Austria. I mistakenly referred to a Belgian film as French the other day because it is in French and people did not like that. So I just wanted ah. to throw that out there before we get the tweets. Um, <laughs> and uh, earlier when I said that you get to know her, um, I think what I meant is I get an impression of who this person is. Yeah, we're not given details. We're not given like specific little facts about this person. Um, but uh, I feel as though I don't always need those in order to have knowledge of who someone is. Um, I feel like I have a pretty clear impression of who she is, or at least I'm projecting onto her the impression that I have when she first has, before she has her stroke. So I think that's kind of what I meant by that. But I definitely agree with you that we are not given, you know, details about this person's backstory prior to the stroke. So, Yeah, I also wanted to point out, because I brought up Isabel Huppert, um, I think she gave a supporting actress worthy nomination here that I wish would have happened, which is one of the things that I, again, can't wait to talk about 2016 when we actually get to talk about her. Um, because like I said, I mean, between that and what the piano teacher and I mean, there's so much we should have been talking about already. So 2016, I, I welcome you. <laughs> All right. Moving on from Ronaldo Sosa. Who do you think was the runner up Golden Globe and Critics' Choice winner Chastain or BAFTA winner Riva? He personally thinks it was Riva since she won in the one award show that has the membership overlap with the Academy and Zero Dark Thirty lost momentum just as more started to gain it. Jeffrey, thoughts? That's actually where I'm leaning more towards. I mean, Riva did fit into the mold of a lot of older actresses who ended up winning an Oscar, and this was probably the one chance Academy members had to award a longtime veteran like her. Oh, I know some people tend to not take as much stock with what BAFTA says. We've seen several times before that BAFTA can be absolutely nothing to sneeze at. I have a feeling that Academy members at large were more likely to watch a movie like Zero Dark Thirty than they were a more. So I have a feeling that more Academy members had seen Chastain than had seen Reba. Mm. Um, so I have a feeling that Chastain might have been the runner-up on that, um, on those grounds. I can see why, like, from, like, precursor uh, momentum uh, logic... Riva seems likely, but I, I simply think Academy members are more likely to watch and vote for a movie like Zero Dark Thirty. That's a good point. Ooh, so I'm going to be the one to tie break this here, aren't I? Okay. <laughs> um, I'm actually going to disagree with both of you. I don't think either of them were second place, and here's why. Um, to answer this question, I honestly, and people may call me crazy for this, but I think it was Quaventionee Wallace, and Ooh. this is why. Because, number one, this was unprecedented in, a, in the Academy's history for such a young person to get this type of role. Number two, you look at her precursors, and there was practically nothing there. She went off of not only word of mouth, but essentially no wins outside of like young actors at these award shows. Number three... Wallace ended up getting in for Zeit or Beast of the Southern Wild ended up getting for Picture, Zeitlin, uh, Writing, and Wallace, which are all huge, big fucking categories. Yeah. If that didn't show you that the Academy was truly going out of the box, I don't know what is. 
So do I think Revo or Chastain were the runner up? I would say neither. I would say it's Wallace. Now, if I had to pick one, I'm going to actually go with Revo, but I don't think it was either of them. I think it was Wallace. Hmm. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> <laughs> Call me crazy, but I'm sticking with it. Well, hey, you make a good point. I'd like so, to believe that she was. I don't know if I completely buy it, but I, I would like to, I'd like to live in a world where Kobanjane Wallace was a in a neck and neck race with Jennifer Lawrence. Talk about I mean, the like, youngins. Like I said, if you're gonna fucking WikiLeak some shit and leak it out to us, give us these results. So, as a reminder, your supporting actress nominees were Anne Hathaway for Les Mis, Amy Adams for The Master, Sally Field for Lincoln, Helen Hunt for The Sessions, and Jackie Weaver for, for Silver Linings Playbook. And I'm going to put Helen Hunt at fifth place because it's a little bit too sketchy to me. Um, her belonging in this lineup is questionable. So um, even though I do like her in The Sessions, um, I feel like I have to disqualify her. So Helen Hunt gets my number five. Okay, my number five. This is definitely going to prove one of your predictions for for my pick for the winner wrong, and that my fifth place is Amy Adams. As good <laughs> as she, yeah, as good as she is in the movie, she again doesn't have a whole lot to do, nor does she have a big standout moment. Because again, a lot of the story of the Master is more focused on Joaquin Phoenix's character with Philip Seymour Hoffman in having the more prominent supporting role. And as much as I would love for Amy Adams to win an Oscar someday, I have to admit. Of her previous nominations, this isn't one I thought she should have won for. Um, okay, so I am also going to agree with Brandon here. Helen Hunt at five. This is just a category fraud. Um, yeah, number five for me. Maybe this is surprising, I don't know. But my number four is Jackie Weaver for Silver Linings Playbook. I really enjoy her in this movie. I think she has a lovely presence and... Um, she makes this character super believable, but I feel like she's not she hasn't she's not really given enough to do, and I'm not as intrigued by this character as I am others. So Jackie Weaver is my number four for Silver Linings Playbook. Jeffrey, well, I'm actually on the same page as you, Brendan, on this, and that is Jackie Weaver is my fourth place. Again, she doesn't have a whole lot to do in Silver Linings Playbook, nor does she have a big standout moment, but I do think she's great in the scenes that she is in, and doesn't really feel worthy of the recognition that, you know, I actually would have nominated her. I mean, again, I would not give her the win, but yeah, I think she's nomination-worthy with her limited screen time. Well, I am going to go with Anne Hathaway at number four. Um... This is an Oscar moment winning performance. This is not an Oscar winning performance. And I say that as a whole. Again, there's not really anything for Fantine to do here outside of I Dream to Dream. You know, this is give me an Oscar on every cue. To the point of if you Google Anne Hathaway for your consideration, people made fun of her with an amazing music video of her entire campaign from that song. People knew that's what it was for. There's no doubting it. This is actually my least favorite win in this category of the entire decade. I think it is the worst of the decade, to be honest with you, when it comes to this category. Um, I don't like the film. I don't like her in this. This is 100% campaign win, and she did not earn this in my eyes. 
My number three goes to Amy Adams for The Master. Um, I disagree with people who say she's not doing anything. Um, I think that's sort of the mysterious nature of this character, or at least I'm choosing to believe that there's something really, really strange beneath the surface. It feels like an iceberg type character where we're only really given the tip of the iceberg with this performance, at least what we see on screen. But there's so much more going on behind the scenes um, that we are intentionally closed off to. Uh, but Amy Adams gives me the impression that there is a lot more to this person than meets the eye. So even though she's not necessarily showcasing all of her talents, she she sparked my curiosity. And so she was able to make it to my number three spot for the master. Okay, my third place is Helen Hunt because now, while I understand both of your complaints of her not deserving to be in supporting when she should have been lead, I get that, but I will say it's still a great performance. And, you know, I'm someone who's come to appreciate Helen Hunt more in recent years, largely thanks from having seen her work on the sitcom Mad About You. I'll say looking back, I was very happy to see her not only get a great movie role this past decade, but also an Oscar nomination for it. While I do think my top two in this lineup have a lot more going for them, I still think she's very good. And it's always great to see veterans like her staying relevant in the industry now. So I am putting an agreement here with Brandon again, Amy Adams at number three. I think it's like with who's in this lineup. I mean, it, it's like an even performance. It's not the worst. It's not the best. Um, I, she's fine. It's neutral, but this feels like a waste of space for somebody else. I guess this is where you could have put Judy Dench in for me. That's, you know, that's fine. But yeah, Amy Adams is meh. She's at three. Uh, my runner-up is Anne Hathaway for Les Mis. Um, I do like her performance in this. I understand that a, a huge chunk of her win comes from the campaign and the sort of unstoppable narrative that she was given. I don't deny that that had a lot to do with it, but I also think she does give a good performance. I really like watching her Fontaine spiral um, farther and farther down. And just when you think she can't go any further, she does. And I think she really makes I Dreamed a Dream her own. I, I agree with that, um, that assessment earlier, I think, from Michael Musto about her being better than Susan Boyle. Now, get, now these are two very different renditions of the song. Especially um, since one's on stage and one's on film. Right, exactly. Um, but something else I don't think any of us mentioned is, uh, I believe she sung this live, or live, you know, well, with accompaniment-ish. Well, yes, I mentioned, that, well, the whole, almost the whole movie, the almost all the singing in the movie was recorded live on set. Right, so I think that has a lot to do with the, um, the grittiness of this version. Um, like I had mentioned, the productions I had seen, it was almost too pretty, and I almost didn't believe that those... Uh, Fontaine's were where they were, which might be why it didn't translate to the Tonys. But um, I think this version makes a whole lot more sense. And um, I guess you could say Anne Hathaway elevated the character in a way. But um, Sally Field is amazing to me in Lincoln. Um, she is strong as hell and she holds her ground and she gives so much life 
to Mary Todd Lincoln and also so much respect. This is a historical figure who is uh, brushed aside a lot or slandered, I guess you could say, people saying she was crazy. Um, I know she had some mental anguish and depression from what I've read. I mean, her ch many of her children died either stillborn or in you know their early childhood. So she had a lot going on in her mind that I think uh, probably manifested in a way. So um, people looked down upon her and made fun of her, I guess. But Sally Field brings so much strength to this character. And I think it's honestly one of Sally Field's best roles. Um, so I'm giving Sally Field the win for Lincoln. Well, I, I like a lot of the points you made about both ladies, Brandon. And this is about where I stand. My runner-up is Sally Field. I think that, you know, had it not been for the Anne Hathaway juggernaut, she probably could have won her third Oscar. And, you know, and that really would have been perfect track record. And, you know, I wonder had she won. I wonder if her speech said, "You now I know, Academy, you really, really like me. <laughs> yeah. And, again, she's definitely great in this movie. And you know what? I think that, you know, and, you know, we talk about how Tommy Lee Jones was probably the runner-up in supporting actor. I think Sally Field was in her category as well. Man, she's, again, great powerhouse performance. She really earned it when, she, you know, she fought for this role and earned it. But my winner is Anne Hathaway. And, Joey, I'm going to have to disagree with you about her being the worst <laughs> supporting actress winner of the decade. She's actually my favorite. And, you know, yeah. as... As someone who only had 15 minutes of screen time in her movie, she really made the most of it. And I even remember just a moment after Christopher Plummer announced Anne Hathaway as the winner, I posted on Facebook saying, And the universe has come full circle. Halle Berry won an Oscar, then went on to play Catwoman. Anne Hathaway played Catwoman, then went on to win an Oscar. That's a good point, actually. I forgot about that one. I forgot about Halle Berry's. All right. Well, um... Okay, so my runner-up this year is Sally Field, which means I'm giving Jackie Weaver the Oscar. Mm. Um, let, me start, let me start with Field. I love this performance. I think this is next to her, th well, her three. Sally Field has three for three when it comes to great nominations. I mean, Norma Ray was my runner-up back in 79 against Bette Midler. I honestly don't remember where I put Sally. I think she might have been my runner-up there as well. So for me, Sally Field makes a great runner-up. She is my raven to my RuPaul dynasty. Um, I think that she does really spectacular work here, and I enjoy every bit of it. However, Jackie Weaver, if you can pull my attention away from Robert De Niro's acting, hello, you deserve that Oscar. I just really feel like people don't give this enough credit that it deserves. This was actually one of my biggest, I remember throwing my remote at the fucking wall and actually breaking my remote when Jack Weaver didn't win this. I did not expect her to win this, but you know what I mean? Like when you, when it actually doesn't happen, you know that, that the chances of it happening is gone. And that's what I experienced. And I was like, fuck. Um, I just think this was a missed opportunity to really reward a amazing performance for, again, in my feeling, essentially a campaign. So, I yeah, I would give it to Jackie Weaver this year. 
Um, okay, moving on. We have, as a reminder, Jennifer Lawrence in Silver Linings Playbook, Emmanuel Riva in Amour, Naomi Watts in The Impossible, Jessica Chastain in Zero Dark Thirty, and Quivenjani Wallace in Beasts of the Southern Wild. Um, I'm starting off with number five, Naomi Watts. This is category fraud. She belongs in supporting. Um, I would have been fine. This is where I noted from earlier that I have an idea of where I would put, you know, who would go where. I would like to switch Hunt and Watts here. I would have been fine with the, the, the lineup staying as the 10 as they are, just with them switching. Um, Watts is good, but she really doesn't have anything to do here. And what she does have to work with is not a lead performance. So I have to put Watts in um, at, at fifth. My number five is Jessica Chastain. Again, while she is great in Zero Dark Thirty, I just wish we knew more about her characters so that people like me could feel personal connection to her. If I was an Academy member, that's an important factor I would usually like to take into account. How much I cared for a specific character. My number five is going to be Naomi Watts for The Impossible. Uh, it doesn't have to do with category placement. Um, I'm okay with her being in this category. Um, it's just um, a performance that I was kind of, I don't want to say bored with, but it kind of drags on for a while, and I don't think it really builds to much. So um, I just found the other four more interesting, I guess you could say. So Naomi Watts is my number five for The Impossible. Well, my number four is this year's winner, Jennifer Lawrence. Um, she's horribly miscast here. She's not mature enough for this role. And it really just feels like she is acting for the back of the room. And you can't do that on film. You can act for the back, back of the room when you're on stage because you have to. For this, it just doesn't work. Um, I, I would like to note that if Naomi Watts wasn't in this category, she would have been dead last for me here. But because of category fraud, Watts has got to go five. Just... This was a bad win. This was a bad year for winners for me, guys, when it came to the ladies. I'm just saying. Well, my, my number four, well, okay, my top four are definitely great and deserving of their nominations, but my number four is Clevenjani Wallace. While I do think my top three in this lineup have a lot more going for them, I'm still very glad she was able to receive this nomination. Again, at only six years old, she was very capable of carrying that movie on the weight of her shoulders. It's absolutely one of the best child performances I've ever seen in a film. My number four is Jennifer Lawrence um, as well. Um, I don't hate this performance like I know a lot of people do, or hate this win like a lot of people do, but it's not exactly my cup of tea. I get it. I get why some people latch onto it um, and relate, but um, it's not the kind of thing that I go for. So Jennifer Lawrence is number four for Silver Linings Playbook. Wow. Okay. Well, we're lining up. Um, I don't think that's going to continue. As number three, I'm putting Emmanuel Riva at three. Um, I really appreciate Riva here and I think she's she was a goddess of acting but because of the fact that most of what she's doing are just uh, mm, mm, it really doesn't hold a candle to Wallace or Chastain um, because they're my final two um, she's great and I feel for her but Grunts can only get you so far, and at least with me, it's halfway, so I got to put her at three. Okay, my number three is actually Naomi Watts. While I get 
the complaints about her being in the lead despite not having, not having enough screen time in The Impossible to justify it, I still think that she's not only a very important part of the story, but also incredible in the film. Uh, my number three is Jessica Chastain for Zero Dark Thirty. I don't mind how shut off we are from this character, given her nature, and I think it was a conscious decision um, on the parts of Bigelow and Chastain. Um, she's also, she's simply incredible in this movie, and I could see a win for her in real life and with me in another year, but um, the other two uh, really resonate with me in a more personal way. So um, Jessica Chastain, unfortunately, can only make my number three spot for Zero Dark Thirty. Wow. My runner-up this year is Jessica Chastain, which means I'm giving Quaventionate Wallace the win, which means, Brandon, you are on point with your predictions there. Um, let me start with Chastain. Chastain, I cannot believe, as of you guys hearing this, we're done with Chastain, because this was a woman who started off the decade where we thought by the end of the decade she would at least have an Oscar somewhere, and I think she should have at least six nominations, and I'm not even talking about wins, I'm just saying at least six nominations. The fact that she's only got two is complete bullshit. Um, I would also like to point out, because I mentioned her for Silverline's playbook, speaking of Rooney Mara, Rooney Mara was originally supposed to play Maya here, and Chastain was the 11th hour replacement. And I think this is one of the points where the right call was made because I could not see anyone else playing Maya. Um, Chastain is brilliant. Chastain is so wonderful here. I actually used one of Chastain's monologues in this movie for my first, yeah, my first, because it wasn't my callback, but my first audition to get into Yale drama back in 2014 or 2015. And that her monologue is what moved me into the next round. And so, of course, I have like a personal love for her performance here because of that. Um, but yeah, I think what Chastain did here was beautiful and she's a really solid runner up. However, I, to this day, cannot fathom how Wallace lost this fucking nomination. Um, between her and Weaver, this was a really disappointing year for me, acting-wise, on the ladies um, for losing. Um, Wallace puts 20-plus-year veterans in this industry to shame with her first performance. Um, there's something so raw and so beautiful about this little girl and what she's able to do. And then you also have to figure out that not only is she acting on camera, but with her voiceovers, she's voice acting as well, telling this fairy tale. And the fact that she's giving us two performances in one and nobody, not even the fucking independent Spirit Award voters, which I wasn't a Spirit Award voter at this time, but had I been, I would have totally voted for her, um, could have seen this and rewarded this is just baffling to me. Um, I think Wallace should have won this, and I'm sticking to it. Okay, so this is going to surprise you. My runner-up is Emmanuel Riva, which means I'm giving Jennifer Lawrence the win. And Joey, you're definitely right about that. I was going to give J-Law the win. So <laughs> Nailed it. So, yeah, so for for Riva, okay, again, uh, mainly, it, again, it took time for me to get invested in her character in the more. And while I definitely was in the end, but while I definitely was by the end, I imagine the performance will probably resonate with me more many years down the line, though I think it's special to see longtime veterans like her receive their very first and in some cases only Oscar nomination late in their careers. As for, okay, so, 
and Jennifer Lawrence is a very controversial Oscar when I happen to defend. And regardless what anyone thinks of it, what I think should at least be appreciated about it is the fact that it's not a typical Oscar-winning performance. Oftentimes, if you're nominated for a weighty drama and or biographical film, you have a very good chance of winning. Yet with Lawrence, she was able to win for a character with gravitas in a dramedy that was not based on a true story. Plus, says. One of many people became a fan of hers that year. I was very happy that she won. Kuvanjane Wallace is my runner-up, and I am giving it to Reba. Uh, Kuvanjane Wallace is incredible in Beast of the Southern Wild. This is a debut for all debuts. Um, she is strong. She is powerful. She is everything. And I can't wait to see what she does um, with the rest of her career. Um, I know she's going to go on to do great things. Uh, it's a, it's impossible to watch this movie and not think she's going to go on to do, to do great things. But um, Emmanuel Riva, I mean, this is the kind of performance that I gravitate toward. Uh, it's intricate and beautiful and tragic, and um, I related to it on a really weird level, um, especially since I'm not so secretly an 80-year-old woman. So... <laughs> Yeah, it definitely has me written all over it. So Emmanuel Riva is my winner for a more. So to recap, I gave it to Jack Weaver and Quivenjane Wallace. And I gave it to Anne Hathaway and Jennifer Lawrence. So yes, I agree with the both acting winner, both actresses who won that year. And my supporting actress winner was Sally Field for Lincoln. And my lead actress winner is Emmanuel Riva for a more. Was anyone shocked with anyone's results here? Hmm. Well, I wasn't. Uh, well, I guess as we are discussing, neither was I. I wasn't expecting Hathaway from you, Jeffrey. I definitely thought I, I would have seen Adam there. That's why I guessed it. But in the end, I would also agree, not super shocked from anybody. So, <laughs> well, Jeffrey, tell the people where they can find you. Well, there's lots of ways you can find me. I am on Twitter at Jeffrey Care, where in my profile you can find a link to the accounts for my blog, Care Reviews, which does have its own website and podcast. If anyone's interested in learning more about my taste in film, I am on Letterboxd. You can also find more of my work on Broadway World and Gold Derby. All right. So, I'm Joey Gentili. And I'm Brandon Stanwyck. And on the count of three, we're going to bid a solid... Thank you. Farewell. I'll read this in my friend. You don't really have to say all that shit. But on the count of three, one, two, three. Alvita said, my friend. Bye. Hasta la vista, baby.